Thank you for tuning back into that 70s pod. Today we're sitting down with Gordon Sinclair Jr. Um, Sinclair retired from the Winnipeg Free Press after almost 40 years as a journalist. He began his career as a copyboy for the Winnipeg Tribune and ended it as a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. He's best known for his work fighting injustice and standing up for the underdog. We're very happy to have him here today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Actually, it's closer to 50 years. Oh, my. Oh. Yeah. yeah, it goes back to 1968. So. Oh, wow. That's yeah. quite a while running for around, the Free Press. Uh, around almost 40 years at the Free Press. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Can you tell us what the industry was like when you started? Yeah, well, I mean, in a way, I started before I even knew I started because my dad was in the business, and uh, I grew up in that milieu. And uh, it was a wonderful uh, a wonderful feeling to be among the the. the uh, the newspaper men and women, mostly uh, mostly men, but there certainly still were women that, in that day. They were actually the, the newspaper business, even in the fifties, if not in the forties, was w- way more open than any other uh, industry I can think of. I mean, they were um, they were quite inclusive, very inclusive. Um, I'll, I'll just digress slightly to, from your answer to the point where, <coughs> when I was there in the sixties late 60s um, and even before that I was a sports writer at that, at that point and uh, I remember there was a guy who would come up to the newsroom at night off the street he would go, either go up the elevator for flights or up the staircase I don't know how he got there but he got there either way he'd walk into the newsroom and the newsroom was one big room and the sports section has its own cluster of desks he would come in every so often at night walk in pick up the phone, dial somewhere, I don't know where he was dialing, talk to somebody, hang up and walk out, and no one would say a word to him. <laughs> and not only that, <laughs> uh, but he, there was um, the library people would come to work early in the morning, and they'd often find uh, people off the street, homeless people, uh, sleeping in the newsroom in, in these bins, and they would just walk right past them, and uh, not a word. And it was, and the people they hired was very, very much like that. Uh, they were very inclusive. A lot of characters and, and sort of people on the, who might be on the fringe of uh, of society in terms of, of uh, other industries, who were very welcomed. And uh, uh, it, 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 I think it really imbued a, a sense of um, every everyone. Uh, they weren't highfalutin. They weren't above any other crowd. They were. They were there for the, the common person because they were also common people, but just happened to have <laughs> um, a passion for what they were doing, whether that would be uh, writing s- stories or drinking or smoking or mm-hmm. carousing or whatever it was. Uh, and my, I remember my dad being uh, having a lot of police friends. The police and the reporters were very close in those days, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a little too close. But... Um, Anyway, that's sort of uh, an overview. But yeah, growing up, it was wonderful, and there was a lot of competition between the Free Press and the Tribune. But the but the people, the reporters and the editors, were all buddies, all friends. They they, they worked hard. It's like a like a hockey game. You know, you go out there and you bang around, but then you you know you make it traded and you go to the other team, and so you're all friends. And they used to uh, go to the press club for New Year's, and uh, I was just going through my boxes of memories uh, last couple of weeks. And pictures of, of both. The Free Press, Tribune, CBC, whomever, uh, other radio stations, all getting together very happily for New Year's. So it was a real family feeling, a real community, and very competitive, extremely competitive. 
Mm-hmm. It's a long answer to a very short question. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not an easy question to answer, I guess. <laughs> uh, what was the most memorable story that you covered over your whole career, if it's if you could choose something? Uh, well, yeah, the shooting of J.J. Harper uh, was certainly... Be- it's most memorable because of its impact and also because of uh, how much time I spent uh, writing the book. I spent a decade mm-hmm. off and on uh, researching and writing it, and... Uh, Certainly, um, it's hard. I mean, certainly you forget parts of it, but it's the essence of it. You don't forget uh, the tragedy of it. So many people were hurt by it. Um, but yeah, for sure. Okay. But there are lots of ones, a lot of good ones. <laughs> a lot of other more happier, a lot of happier ones too. Okay, what's your most memorable happy story then? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Putting him right on the hot seat here. Let yeah. Me, <laughs> let, me, let me think. Let me think. Uh, well, I mean... Um, <laughs> you know what's funny, isn't it? The happier stories are harder to um, to remember, not you know, to summon, mm-hmm. uh, because they um, they are uh, often very personally happy, and uh, and often uh, they don't uh, they don't linger too long because they don't uh, they don't have um, actually I think in a lot of ways. You know, the happy stories were sometimes stories where you could help somebody who was in trouble, who needed help, who had no voice. And there were lots of those because um, as I wrote uh, over the years, um, you, you, you can see in the letters that I saved all the letters uh, with the idea of giving them to the university because it would be like an archaeological dig of mm-hmm. what were people thinking about, what did people, why were people writing to the paper, um, and they, um, those, uh, there's great satisfaction in um, in helping people who have who uh, who need help, and uh, uh, and and the, the sad part of it is that uh, as I went through those letters in the last couple of weeks. Um, all the, all the people I couldn't help, they, uh, I didn't have time because I was writing, you know, the first eight years I wrote five columns a week, and you could hardly take a breath. And um, the last uh, 30-ish I ran, uh, I had three a week, which gave you a little bit of time between. But uh, for me, the, the, that column I wrote for 37 and a half years was, uh, it evolved, mm-hmm. it changed. What became, what was sort of just listening to the public, writing basically what they told me, or finding something on the street became more uh, news oriented and uh, evolved. So, uh, yeah. I don't know, that was, what was the question again? Oh, yeah, happy stories. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm trying to think, I mean, I wrote about, uh, one of the happy stories I wrote about was when I, uh, when I, Gave my wife, uh, my future wife, a ring on the on a, on a plane, um, her engagement ring that she bought in Toronto, and I gave it to her in the plane. That was I won't get into all the details, but it was a, that was a very happy story. Yes, for sure. So, but, but then that's very personal. You, yeah, uh, those, you right. remember those ones because they are personal. Yeah, exactly. You have the biggest impact. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. So I'm curious how you found your stories for that column that you were writing. You know what it was really for the most part it was just it was listening. Mm. Those letters I, re- I, re- I mentioned, um, people wrote to me, or they phoned me. They had very direct, right to my desk. Well, there was a switchboard operator, but if I was in the office, which I often was in the daytime, or even at night, 
I found one letter. I was there at 2.30 in the morning when this woman reached me. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> long hours. And um, you just listen to people. They, they told you what that was important to them. And then sometimes you go out, you go to a restaurant and you overhear someone talking or you just got a sense of something or something happened in the news that you felt you needed to go deeper into. Um, when uh, Barbara Stoppel was murdered on December 23rd, 1981, uh, which was just months after I started, six months after I started writing the column, I went out and looked for the for witnesses. And uh, so I always had this instinct to uh, for the street. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what you, you, it's really valuable if you're going into journalism <laughs> to have this sense of the street, to not get too tang- tangled up in the technology, to remember that stories are at the street level. That's where you find a lot of them from real people who talk to come to you. Um, and uh, it's, always, it's good to be out there listening, watching, engaging, uh, because um, when you're doing those stories, or trying to find those stories, um, those are stories that are the ones that matter most to people. And, and you know the thing is, when you, when you write a story, whether it's a column, particularly a column, but any story, you think of the reader. And first of all, you know, not just how you write it, which is very important to think of the reader, but also, uh, is this story matter to anyone? And you gauge that, by, in a sense, by what does it matter to you does it, does it hit you? There used to be a saying that something, what, someone says, it, if a story hits you in the, um, in the heart, uh, the head, or the lower regions, uh, <laughs> uh, or the wallet, that's the other one, or the wallet, these are sort of the, the catch, I, that's not an exact quote, but you get the, you get the idea. Right. Yeah, yeah. You're laughing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's laugh. <laughs> All right. Uh, Now, going back to comparing journalism in the 70s to what it was like before you retired, Uh, it was like, where, how would you describe it? The difference? Yeah. In a way, that's part of what I just talked about, the idea that we, we, um, uh, that there is a tendency not to, like, in the 70s, it was all about uh, connecting directly, but in a very personal way, not in that sort of the distant the more distant way of texting, you don't hear the voice. There's not really a uh, the kind of thing we're having right now. This conversation. Um, so, and there was no technology that really. I mean, the telephone was the only te- real technology that you, you use from a distance. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, to me that's the most fundamental difference. Uh, and the thing about today is you can still have that, but. We, we tend to choose to twit, you know, do Twitter or, or to text, and, uh, and it, you lose something in that. You, know, you lose something personally in friendships, I think. It's a little too, um, and we all do. I mean, people my age do it, and it's convenient. Mm-hmm. But it also keeps you at a bit of a distance. You don't hear the voice. I have a friend right now who's having some, a lot of pain, and I keep on texting him, and... Um, or even my brother, who's you know uh, the same thing. We text, and it's only when you talk to somebody on the phone or in person that you really get a sense, a personal sense. And uh, so I think that's um, that's one of the fundamental differences. But in terms of, of the of the actual doing the job, of course, it was 
I mean, in 1973, 74, I was in, I was, what, 25 or something. I was uh, the northern reporter for the Edmonton Journal. I was based in Yellowknife for two years. And uh, I had my own telex machine in my, in my <laughs> office, my second bedroom. And I'd, I'd write my stories on a telex machine, and, the, and it would be fed straight to the office on this telex machine. Um, that was the technology. No, no, very few reporters did that, I mean, because you didn't have to. You know, I was, I was hundreds of miles away from Edmonton. And, uh, but, yeah, and it was um, the typewriter. Uh, you went from the typewriter to an electric typewriter and, uh, and this um, sensitive paper that they feed into a, into a well, they feed into a, a, tele, a type um, that would, not type, but a tape that would become type. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then, of course, the computers came along and so on. So I... You know, you sort of ran the gamut. My from the 1950s, which is where my when I when I was a kid, I go up to the free press on Saturdays with my dad, and uh, when no one was there, and I pretend to be typing. <laughs> I, I was typing, but pretend to be doing stories, and uh, and so it was um, it was a very it, yeah to go from pencil and paper to what it is today, um, and I think that. I don't know if you'll be asking this question. Maybe have, it's implicit in what you just asked me, but um, I I feel that technology has taken over our lives. Not, I'm talking about as, as journalists that you feel this compulsion to be always on, always tweeting, and so on. And I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's healthy for um, for the person doing it. And I don't know that it's so healthy for journalism. I think that there's nothing wrong with tweeting. But we become addicted to it in a sense, or you always have to be doing it, or always thinking about doing it. Uh, where's your downtime? Where's your space? Where's your private time? Uh, having said that, <laughs> I mean, my, I, I was pretty addicted to my job, so, but I didn't have to tweet it. And you know what the thing is? The other thing is that you, you write something for a paper or you do something for a broadcasting. How much more often do people have to hear from you? I mean, how many, you know, you, if after a while, I think you get tired of your own voice. Mm. Never mind other people getting, you know, having to put up with it. Mm. I don't mean, I'm not talking about, I'm just talking personally. I'm not talking about necessarily everybody, but I, uh, that's how we look at it from a distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see that with how on Twitter um, we follow several journalists who they live tweet things that are going on, like all day long, every two minutes, there's a new update about something. I can imagine that would get pretty exhausting. Yeah, you're going to burn out eventually, and, and uh, people are going to be, uh, unless you're incredibly gifted and everyone is just hanging on every word you say, uh, it can get over, you know, you can get, burn out your audience as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you tweet? No. <laughs> Did you tweet when you were... I think I, I think I tried once. <laughs> they wanted me to tweet, but I just, again, just that, that idea, I mean, I, I think that people had heard enough of me without tweeting. Yeah, and I didn't. I wasn't a reporter at, per se, yeah. mm -hmm. so it's a different kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You get to choose your own stories and do your own thing. So it's mm -hmm. a little, little different. But no, I, I resisted that, uh, that call to duty. You mentioned just now, um, in answering that question, that you used to go with your dad to the newsroom and like pretend to type mm -hmm. stories out. Um, in one of your columns, I read that you said um, that newspapers are your birthright. Did you always then know that you wanted to go into journalism? You know, I, I'll tell you what happened. Um, 
I think that growing up in that uh, milieu, uh, you, it was, you, you were, yeah, it, it was, I mean, you felt like you were part of it from the day one. Uh, I mean, as long as you can remember it. Because it, was, it wasn't just your dad writing. It wasn't just newspaper. It was the community, mm. a very close community. And um, then I, uh, um, what happened was, I just came across this column uh, this week when I was culling everything I could find, shredding everything I could find in terms of, of uh, old, old columns and so on. I came across one with my dad and how I realized decades later what he'd done. And what he did was, uh, he never told me he wanted me to be a journalist or a newspaper man or a writer. Um, he kind of didn't have to. And uh, because when I was 16, uh, he got me a job uh, at the other newspaper. Like he, my dad was at the Free Press. And he got me a job at the, free, at the Tribune working uh, as a high school kid um, in the summer and then as a copy boy. And then at, uh, uh, over, over the winter, I'd work on the weekends. And... Um, that's where, in those days, that's where, I mean, you could go to university, you could get a journalism degree, but that, that door was still open where you would learn on the job. And uh, so I was 16 working there, and I, I was playing football and baseball and so on as a kid, and I sometimes cover leagues that I was playing in and just give little short little tiny little stories, about basically score stories and who scored and that sort of thing. And uh, by the time I was 18, I was uh, signed by the St. Louis Cardinals, as a pitcher, uh, uh, and so that was somewhat that was newsy. Mm. First of all, because I worked in the sports department, <laughs> so they were kind of excited <laughs> at the Tribune. And I found the story that they wrote on me, and in it, at 18, I was saying, you know, chances of getting to the major leagues are very slight. For you know, the, the numbers don't add up. Um, but I, I want to come back and be a sports writer. I can be a sports writer. I was saying that in print at 18. So. That gives you an idea. That sort of answers your question in a... Right. Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it does. Oh, that's pretty... I didn't know that about you. What? The baseball? The baseball yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. It was uh, very short-lived, but... Um, <laughs> but I know I, I, what I'm doing right... Since I know you're going to... You won't ask me this question, so I'll ask me. So what are you doing now? Are you doing your writing? Well, no, but... <laughs> 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 no, but... But so... Uh, but I am. When I turned 65 uh, seven years ago... No, six years ago... I, I wrote this column where I said, all I want for my 65th birthday is to find the guys I played baseball with. Oh. Not the guys who made the major leagues, the guys who didn't. And what happened to them when their little boy dream ended when they're not much more than big boys? What did they do for a lifetime, those 50 years? I'm getting chilled on my back as I'm saying <laughs> this. Yeah. So I started, I started looking for them, and uh, that's what I've been doing. And... Uh, I actually went to St. Louis for a weekend in August and met two of them. Wow. Uh, and one of them, one of the guys' uh, sons made the major leagues. But what's fascinating about it, it's, what it is, is just a, it's a story about uh, the book, if I write it. It's, first of all, it's a journey. It's a beautiful journey. Sad in times when you find them not, not alive. But it's a beautiful journey back to find these guys you, only, you really didn't know that well. They were 19, 20. They weren't fully formed and they weren't, mm -hmm. they hadn't experienced life in full and you didn't, they didn't talk personally. You guys didn't talk, even on the bus, along, long bus rides between Idaho and the border of California. Uh, there was not a lot of personal talking. And now I'm learning about what they were like, what were they going through at 19 and 20 mm -hmm. 
that didn't know before and then what happened to them and um, and how diverse they all are. And there's a judge there's a judge from BC and there's you know there's a cop in St. Louis and there's a wow. PhD <laughs> PhD uh, uh, educator in um, in Omaha, Nebraska and there's a golf pro and there's a it goes on and on. Yeah. And um, and it's in, what, what partially interested me is, is also how little I knew about being black in America when I was 19. We had four black players on our team and uh, what they were going through. And uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated when we were in spring training. So, it, so the, idea, the, the idea of the book is to the journey, but also a, a little bit of um, putting things in context for a time during the Vietnam War and so on when when you as 19 year old Canadian you didn't have much of a clue of, it, of what was really happening so thanks for asking that question <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're still writing well I'm not yeah. right I'm not re- I haven't really written anything on this and most of it's just finding guys and uh, yeah. online and on the phone and in that in- instance actually going to St. Louis and meeting up with them but I've got a lot more research to do I don't know if I'll ever write it or not but uh, it's something to keep me occupied. Mm-hmm. So it's true sure. that the journalism brain never stops. <laughs> no, it, you know it, it doesn't, and and because uh, that's how you were your whole your whole life is thinking about stories. And actually, we spent over a year at the Fort Garry Hotel, and I'd pick up bump, bump into people from all over the world, mostly older people, and uh, and I'd be learning about them and you know just having conversations and I'd, t- and I'd share the conversations i'd be telling stories not writing them but just telling you know just just like if i'd be sitting here telling you a story about someone i met it was it's fun it's i love stories i love people mm. and you can you can learn a lot about people in a very short time if you're actually interested okay so your last column was titled the last word and in <laughs> it you offered advice for writers um do you have any other pieces of advice you could offer to people wanting to pursue journalism? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I don't know if I, yeah, but um, I think the most important skill, um, and it's a skill that um, you would think all journalists would have if you happen to think about it, but it's not a skill that, I mean, it's a skill you can teach, but not really. And that's listening. Because um, what I found, I'm a very slow learner. I didn't understand what my dad was doing when I was 16. It it took me decades to figure out, why do people tell me their stories? So I'll tell you a story Mm. to get to this, make the point. So 15 years ago, or whenever it was, um, the book I wrote was part of the curriculum here in this this, uh, in your curriculum, and uh, I came to the class one day, and uh, one of the students said, uh, "I can't believe those women told you those things." And the women were the the wife of the police officer who uh, died by suicide, the wife of J.G. Harper, the wife of uh, Robert Cross, who uh, who shot Harper, the sisters, the girlfriend. They all talked to me. It took two years to talk to the wife of the officer who was uh, who died by suicide, and I only I only went knocked on the door because uh, the son had had a story about her, so I felt I could I could then knock on the door. The first thing she said to me when I came to the door was I, I knocked on the door, and the, these windows had little these little slant windows like they're 
three of them, and she looked, she on her tiptoes looked out and said, what are you selling? The door was still closed. <laughs> she yelled, what are you selling? And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I guess I wonder, what am I selling? <laughs> and, but she opened the door, we talked for two or three or four hours, whatever it was, a long time. And uh, anyway, so that question from the student, I can't believe, haunted me in the sense that, does she mean it literally, that she can't believe? I mean, did, did I make it up? Or, or what, was it, what was it she didn't believe? So it, years and years later, I can still haunt it by that, I, I realized something. I realized that, um, why do people talk to me? Why do people talk to me in the elevator for three floors? Or why do they talk to me if I just bump into them on the street? Or why do they talk to me when I'm interviewing them? Or why, am I talk why do they talk to me when I'm not interviewing them? And I realized the gift I had that I didn't know I had, and that was listening. That I, people can tell. That's the difference between listening and listening. People can tell when you're actually interested. It isn't necessarily just about the story. And that you feel that you are interesting, really want to hear what they have to say, or interested in them. They can feel that. And I think years later, I realized, because of that question, that this is a gift. So you can learn how to listen, and police officers are taught how to listen, and reporters are taught how to listen. I think, uh, but if you, it's a, it's a gift that you often don't know you have, and uh, it comes, I think, part from just being fascinated by people, and their stories, and who they are. That's a long answer. Is that? <laughs> that's that's amazing. That is, and that's very, like, on brand with what we're learning in journalism right now. Yeah, our instructors are really trying to drill into our minds, like, if you just sit down and stop talking and let people just tell their stories to you, like things are going to come out that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, exactly. And, and, it's, and, uh, and, you, and you, if you do that, um, they'll know that you're actually interested. It isn't just necessarily about a story. It's about them, learning about them. And then, of course, you can learn about yourself too, but that's not the reason you do it. You learn, you're, you, you know, you want to... Let me. Put, I'll just finish on, on this, this this topic by saying this: that um, how many times in your lifetime, short as it's been, <laughs> compared to mine, uh, have people have you ever met people who actually are interested in you, who sit, who ask you a question about yourself and are actually interested in the answer? That it's not perfunctory. That it isn't how are you doing, and then off they go. I mean, your girlfriends or boyfriends or whomever uh, may, uh, should have that, they should be good with that, but, and your parents. Uh, but most people don't care. And, and you can see it because often when you, when you drill down, you talk to people and you ask them question after question, you've learned all about them, which I do all the time, just because I love doing it. Um, they rarely answer, they rarely ask you a question. So uh, it's very interesting. And think about, like, if you just think back in your life and watch for, and go forward, you'll see that. So when you actually are interested in somebody, it's very powerful for them to have someone listen to their lives. Food for thought. Yeah, that definitely does. That, that really lines up with what James and Joanne have been telling us too in our classes about if you just let people 
like just let them open up to you without just sticking to a list of pre-prepared questions right. and not willing to branch off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, <laughs> That's cool. They put an emphasis on on sitting quietly because yeah. you get your best stuff when you don't say yeah. anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or if you just look at them and, and you know, uh, pay attention to them, look at them, look in the eyes. Yeah. But I, w- you know, I didn't, I don't, I mean, there are, there are interview techniques that obviously, but I think sometimes if you get too much into the technique, you lose the um, naturalness of it. Mm-hmm. You know how, you know how to engage people. Yeah. 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 Um, I do have one question for you about that. Uh, interviewing people when you started off. Um, for us, at least, it's a big learning curve, getting comfortable asking people personal questions about themselves. How did you become comfortable doing that? Uh, you know, I, I just think that was... Um, I, I think I'm, I've never had that question asked, and I've never thought of it deeply, but I, I think that the, the answer probably is that uh, journalism gives you a license to ask questions. And sometimes they're, they're very probing questions because of the nature of the story. Mm-hmm. And I think probably after a while, it just becomes, as long as you're respectful in how you ask and don't push it too far, um, I think that uh, you just could, I mean, I guess for me, I, I just became so, it became part of me. I, I, not just as a journalist, as a person. I'm just that way now. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you don't have to write a story to be interested in people. It would not be an honest story. And uh, so I think that, if that, does that answer your question? Yeah, that does. It's definitely something that takes a lot of practice, I think. Well, I think that you, you know, you, I think that you'll be, I think that sometimes if you're, you know, kind of shy or, or if you're a little introverted um, and uh, naturally quiet, uh, this business allows you to come out of yourself. And I think, uh, like, I don't think I was always like this. I don't think as a kid I was always so, uh, I may have been interested, but not maybe not interested in actually asking a question. Yeah. But as I say, the business gives you license to do that. So those are uh, all the questions we have for you. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. This has been really very enlightening. Well, yes, it has. <laughs> well, I thank you for inviting me, and, and uh, I just want you to know, I, I don't know if this is on the, on the beginning of this, I would mentioned earlier that uh, I've been to the dentist today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You asked me where <laughs> I've been. say that, yes. And I said, that I, I feel like I'm coming to the dentist again, but in, uh, in fact, you made it very uh, relaxing and very, uh, very, very uh, comfortable, and uh, thank you very much. Oh, I'm glad. That's good to hear. Yeah, that is very good to hear. Thank you, Gordon Sinclair Jr., for joining us on this episode of That 70s Pod. Yeah, that almost makes me want to go into journalism now. (laughs) (laughs) That was some really great perspective that you shared with us. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, Next time, we're going to be talking to Gerald Flood, who's also a former Winnipeg Free Press uh, reporter from the 1970s. He has a lot to share with us, and we're really excited to have him on. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you.